Before we get into today's show, I just wanted to let you know about our new podcast that I'm so excited about called Mindbenders. It's a podcast about stories of synchronicity that can bend minds. You can find Mindbenders podcast at Spotify, Apple podcast, and mindbenderspodcast.com. Submit your mind-bending story today by emailing us at mindbenders at path11productions.com or by calling us. Leave your story on our voicemail. It's okay if it's a long one. We'll call you back. 1-323-713-1113. Again, that's 1-323-713-1113. Also, the 2020 Virtual Afterlife Awareness Conference has ended, but the replays are still available at path11productions.com slash ac2020. For $129, you can watch just over 17 hours of streamed videos from professionals including Robert Moss, Austin Wells, Edie Nathan, Brian Smith, and Daniel 4 PhD, just to name a few of the presenters. Visit path11productions.com slash AC2020 to see the complete list. Topics include dealing with grief, working with death doulas, psychic children, and suicide. These videos won't last forever, but they can be watched anytime at your convenience until September 30th, 2020. Visit path11productions.com slash AC2020 for all the information. And if you haven't seen our documentaries yet, the Path Series Trilogy, you can watch all three for free at Gaia.com. Just sign up for their one-week free trial. You can cancel at any time and watch The Path Afterlife, The Path Beyond the Physical, and The Path Evolution. Oh, and before we get into our show, I wanted to remind you to use your 25% off discount code PATH2PORTAL, all caps, PATH, the number two portal, path to portal at reconnection.com for trainings by Dr. Eric Pearl. They absolutely loved being on our show and they wanted to give back to our listeners. So you guys are lucky and are getting 25% off if you go to their website, reconnection.com. All of these links are listed in the show notes for today's episode. So enough of all these announcements, let's get to our show for today. And thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to introduce a new medium that we have going on here with the Path 11 podcast. We're going to be broadcasting live on Mondays. So now you have the opportunity to actually watch our interviews live. Um, we're really excited about that. And this is the first interview, or actually, no, it's we're going to have two more interviews that are coming out uh, prior to this one that is going to be showing this live stream that we have going. So I wanted to guy- let you guys know that. We also have um, just a wonderful guest guests today. I have to tell you that this is a book that I have been highlighting so many things. I really want to select it for my spiritual self-help book club. That might be something new that you guys aren't aware of that I started over the summertime during the pandemic. And I have some Path 11 podcast listeners that haven't been able to work with me in person because I live in New York and they have joined my Zoom spiritual self-help book club. And I think I'm going to select this book that I have read today by Jeff Thompson, who is our guest the divine CEO. And I run that on Zooms. 
uh, the Zoom platform Monday night, 6 to 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I believe I'm going to select this book for my October class. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our guest, Jeff Thompson. He has written over 40 books and has appeared on the Sunday Times bestseller list on several occasions. He is a winning screenwriter. Uh, his first book, Watch My Back, was made into a stage play and then later uh, nominated for a short film. And that was through the British Academy of Film and Television Arts. And that was starring Ray Winstone. And it won a British Independent Film Award uh, nominated for Motion Picture for Cinema. He also has penned multi-winning films for luminaries such as Ray Winstone, Patty Constantine, Orlando Bloom, who I'm familiar with, Maxine Peake, Anne Reed, Allison Stedman, and James Cosmo. He's also one of the world's highest ranking 8th Dan martial arts teachers. The prestigious Black Belt Magazine USA polled him as the most influential martial artist in the world since Bruce Lee. Holy cow, guys. Welcome, Jeff Thompson. Hi, Hi Jeff. How are you? Good to speak. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for being here. So uh, one of the things that I loved in reading this book, and we're going to get into it and let the audience know a little bit what we're referring to as these hundred rooms, but you realized in your world that maybe you were living in one, one of these rooms, you had one of these realities, and then you began to learn and realize that you had so many other rooms and so many other realities that you could venture into. And I feel like your bio just taps into a little bit of that uh, with, you know, being a writer screenplay writer, um, you know, winning these awards in, in cinema, being a martial artist. So just uh, let our audience know a little bit about your background and how you kind of came through all of this to be where you are today. And then we'll get into the Divine CEO book that you wrote. Yeah, well, it was it was uh, Don, Don Juan Matas who said to his student, Carlos Castaneda, that your reality is one room in a house of 100 rooms. If you train with me, I can help to get out of the room you're in and into a better room. If you train with me, I can get you out of the house. I was always inspired by that because when I was younger, my room was very small. My reality was very small. I suffered with depression, uh, with anxiety, with fear. Um, and I lived in um, a very limiting reality. I was driving an old car, living in a small house, in a marriage that uh, was not great. I was working in a factory sweeping floors. Um, I was, I just so wanted to write. I so wanted to teach martial arts. I so wanted to give up my job. But every time I got to the periphery of my current reality and tried to open the other room, it was like my hat blew off with the force on the other side. I was so afraid. I was actually kept, um, I was actually kept in my reality by my own body chemistry, adrenaline you know, what we associate with fear. This culminated in me having a very difficult depression. And in this depression, um, I would say I reached rock bottom and I just thought from somewhere I found some courage and just thought I can't live like this anymore. I'd be waking at four in the morning in a cold sweat with my wife asleep next to me in the bed and my kids asleep in the other rooms. I was in this house full of people, but I was completely alone. The doctor couldn't help me. His answer was to give me antidepressants. Um, all of the professionals I spoke to, all the books I read, couldn't seem to help me. They all promised to tell me the truth, but none of them really offered the truth. 
And I just remember thinking, when I find the truth, I'm going to tell everybody. Um, in this particular depression, I found from somewhere, I found uh, some courage. And I just thought, I'm going to do something about this. This is the last time I'm going to feel like this. So I decided to write down everything I was afraid of. I guess this was my first communication with my soul. It broke through. My ego collapsed. It broke through. And it encouraged me to write down everything that I was afraid of on a, on a pyramid, on a piece of paper. My least fear on the bottom step, my worst fear on the top step, and then systematically confront my fears until I gained desensitization to my body chemistry, got control of my body chemistry, and found some desensitization to fear. That's what I did. The bottom step of the pyramid was a fear of spiders. It seems a bit like a cartoon fear, but if there was a spider in the room, I couldn't sleep. The next step was the fear of dentists. Uh, the, my fear of dentists was enough to stop me from going for several years. From, I never went for many, many years. The top of the pyramid, the pinnacle of my pyramid, was a fear of violent confrontation. So I started to climb this pyramid. I started to overcome the things I was afraid of. And each time I overcame one step, my courage grew, my experience grew. Um, each time I, um, each time I intercoursed with the fear and dissolved it by absorbing it, um, I, a little bit more light came in, a little bit more consciousness. I was able to see a little bit more clearly. Um, and I used the strength from the previous step to climb onto the next step and the next step and so on until I got to the top of the pyramid, which was a fear of violent confrontation. Now, again, you might think this is a, you know, this is a, this is a normal fear. Everybody would have that fear, but mine was a debilitating fear. And I was a black belt in karate, so I felt I shouldn't be feeling this fear. I felt I should be fearless. Um, and yet here I was, still trembling in my boots. So uh, I did the only thing that you could do if you want to overcome your fear of violence. <laughs> I took a job as a nightclub bouncer in the in the most violent club, in the most violent city in Europe for its size and population. It was a hugely violent place. It's not, there's no exaggeration. In the time I worked as a bouncer, four of my friends were murdered. It was a hugely violent place. So I took a job as a nightclub bouncer to overcome my fear. And on the first night, it was a Saturday night and I was a neophyte. I was, you know, I was green. I was so afraid. I could feel the adrenaline from the soles of my toe, to, uh, the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. My body was awash with adrenaline and it was the longest night of my life. It felt like there was a common saying in Coventry. I spent five years in that nightclub one night. <laughs> that's how long it felt so yeah. so i just decided there and then I, I can tick this off the list i've done a night I've, I've confronted my fear of violence i'm not coming back i can't do this <laughs> and at the end of the night the head doorman a guy called awesome anderson and he was awesome he said to me uh you're a bit of a greenhorn but you did well you know you uh, you didn't fall over you didn't run away you didn't embarrass us so if you want to come back come back and i was so lifted by that one um affirmation i just thought i was so inspired i just thought well, I'll, I'll i'll come back and do a couple more nights because I, you know i'll be okay and i ended up staying there for nearly a decade 
And of course, I've got a massive amount of experience. I would say it was my first metaphysical experience because, of course, I wasn't really witnessing. Uh, there was lots of violence and there was lots of monsters coming towards me, very real monsters. But, of course, I realized in retrospect, as I started to write about it, that the monsters were monsters of my own making. They were projections from my own consciousness. I'd been brought up with a... Um, with the belief that nobody could be trusted, not even the people you love, especially the people you love. I was sexually abused when I was a boy. So I had this real belief that no one could be trusted. So I went out into the world and I projected that fear and everywhere I went, I found violence. So the, my first metaphysical, metaphysical experience was standing on that nightclub door and seeing the physical manifestations of all my fears present themselves. I actually physically saw them. And we went into this kind of mortal combat on this pavement outside the, outside the nightclub called Busters. Um, and, you know, I was able to see, I was able to see the projections from my own mind. When I realized it was me projecting those fears and that they were manifestations of my own imagination and my own um, falsely implanted belief, I stepped away from violence, I stepped away from the doors, and I allowed those um, I allowed those demons to dissolve just by no longer engaging them. I mean, that, that makes it sound easy. It took me a long time to do that, a lot of introspection, a lot of uh, um, inner searching. But that was it. Um, the, the pyramid started off with mundane fears like spiders and dentists. And I recognized very quickly as I started to climb and ascend the pyramid that these uh, mundane fears were placeholders. They weren't the real fears. Uh, they were just distractions. Below these um, fears that presented, there were bigger fears. There was a fear of, uh, I was afraid of my wife. I was afraid of any kind of marital conflict. I was afraid of my mother. Again, the, the fear of my mother was uh, my, not the fear of my mum, but the fear of my mum abandoning me, even as an adult, was so potent that it that when I confronted it, it felt like I was climbing out of a dugout with a bayonet going into no man's land. I recognised that I was afraid of change. Any change in my life triggered my body chemistry. My body chemistry triggered the flight response, and I would either freeze or I'd run in the opposite direction. My inner dialogue would come in and say, look at the coward you are. Look at what a coward you are. You're a black belt. Now you're supposed to be able to deal with these things. So my inner dialogue, my inner demon would, um, would suffer on uh, my lack of ability, my, my lack of courage. So I started to recognize that I was afraid of lots of subtle things. At the very, very bottom of that, and this is what I've learned from Julian of Norwich, uh, a great mystic, was that I wasn't really afraid of any of those things. Again, all of those are placeholders, but I didn't recognize it until I, until I confronted one after the other, until I embraced those lepers and dissolved those lepers by absorbing 99% of them. I realized at the very bottom of it, I was afraid of being abandoned by my source, which was God. Uh, or consciousness, or uh, the universe. God's God's an easier way to describe it. So I was afraid. Uh, this what this is what Julian of Norwich said. Really, the the the, 
the base of all our fears is that we're going to be abandoned by our source. And that's what I felt. I felt that when I was abused as a boy, I was abandoned by God. And if you're abused by your, your if you're um, abandoned by your source, of course, that's going to fill you with terror. It's an existential terror. I was able to locate that source through the different exercises that I put myself through and recognize that that core, that source, um, the idea that I could be abandoned by that source was another anomaly. It was another lie projected from my inner opponent, from my shadow or from what Eckhart Tolle would call the pain body. We can't be abandoned by what is constant. And God is the only constant. Um, so this this took me only took me forty years really to uh, to to figure this out. Um, so that that was that's where I come from. I studied the martial arts as a way to overcome my fears. I became a bouncer to overcome my fears. Um, and as I started to go along the way and teach what I'd learned, I recognised that uh, I'd made this. I remember that I'd made this vow when I was depressed. I'd made this vow, and this vow was. When I learn the truth, I'm going to tell everybody. And of course, I didn't realize at the time, only in retrospect, that is the secret. That's the secret to the Torah. That's the secret to all the great texts. That's the secret to metaphysical power. Um, in, in, um, in the, I think it's the Zohar, it says, when the, it says that the master sets the table for the servant before he eats himself. And it's an allegory. What it means is that he calls down the energy and the essence for other people before he before he serves himself. That's a selfless act. That's what they would call uh, the left side of the tree of life. When we call down goodness for other people, we are uh, we are given abundance as long as we receive it in order to pass it on. We receive it in order to give other people. So I've spent the rest of my life doing just that, writing it down, talking about it, making films about it, making stage plays about it, talking to lovely people like you about it, in the hope that um, I will plant seeds everywhere and at some point some young girl or some young lad who wakes up at four in the morning in a cold sweat with a voice that said, I'm here forever, you will never get rid of me. And, and there's no potential. They will watch this and they will see that there is. I'm proof. I am living proof. I am certain. Yes. And you talk about that. Your, I, I wrote it down. Your experience gives you certainty. Yeah. You have I to process. You, so often we get, we get uh, little insights, little, um, little sparks of wisdom, but they have to be uh, developed um, in the, in the, um, in Judaism, they call it Shabbat, and it says that we receive, we receive um, wisdom, we process wisdom, and then once we've processed wisdom, it becomes knowing. So wisdom, um, so this creativity and this understanding on its own is not enough. It has to spill and become knowing. When it's knowing, we, we attain uh, yakin or certainty. In Islam, they call it yakin, which means certainty. And Yaqeen is one. Yaqeen is one of the ninety-nine names of Allah, as written in the Holy Quran. Um, and the reason the word Yaqeen is important is because it, it because it is one of the ninety-nine names of God. So when we receive when we when we receive Yaqeen, 
when we receive certainty, we are literally receiving God. So certainty is God. So we receive or return a little bit of God back into us. So when we speak about things, people automatically resonate because they know we are certain. So they don't hear Jeff Thompson, this this uh, temporary personality. They will hear the certainty of God coming through uh, through the sound. God is in the sound. I think uh, in Egyptology they call it uh, heka, the use of magic sound. When we have when we have certainty, the sound becomes magic. I think the Japanese call it kotodama gaku, the practice of magic sound. So when we have certainty, people feel that certainty. And it can climb inside them, and I can transfer spirit from me to you or from me to somebody disparate around the world who doesn't even know me, who just hears my voice at four in the morning, because certainty contains God. But it has to be earned. So this process of, of Chabad is that um, it's called Hakama Bina and then Da'at. So Hakama is the divine, the divine um, wisdom that comes down. Bina is when we when we develop that to so that we understand it, the breadth and the depth of it. And then the art is when it clicks and you suddenly go, ah, ah. I know this. I, I understand this. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think um, was it, uh, Richard Rose would call the happy accident. We don't know how to make a happy accident, but we do know how to make ourselves accident prone. So the process of Shabbat enables you to uh, find certainty in a in a very um, pragmatic way. So we can take these little bits of wisdom that we, you know we think we've got this bit of wisdom, we think we know something, but if we can't make that magic work on our body, if we can't see it in the mirror, if we can't see it in our relationship, if we can't see it in our business, if we can't see it in our health, then it's not it's not any good. It's just it's just uh, a wisdom, an aphorism. It's something that we throw around and it sounds good, but it's no good unless it's got muscle. Understanding, I can I can explain the breadth and depth of you, the depth of it here, but if that understanding hasn't clicked into certainty, the understanding isn't any good either. You've got to have certainty. And when you have certainty, people will cross the globe to touch the hand of certainty. Because if you're in the company of somebody that's been in the company of God, you yourself are in the company of God. So certainty is God, and it has to be earned. We won't get it from a book. We just won't. But we put books out there um, in the hope that the inspiration will transfer to people and feed them and give them a little bit of energy so that they can find their own search. They can, they can um, mount their own search so that they can turn inwards um, and climb their own inner peak so that they can connect with their own tube, their own soul, and then their own soul will teach them. And that's where the certainty comes from. Then it doesn't really matter what anybody else says to you. It doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. When I was a bouncer, I was teaching martial arts around the world, and I was teaching teaching pragmatic martial arts, martial arts that worked in a real situation. I, I got a reputation around the world because I was certain I was certain because I took this instinct to overcome my fears and I stood in a nightclub and I found what was real. And when I passed it on to other people, they knew it was real. I mean, it upset the whole martial arts world because what they thought they had was real wasn't real. So suddenly all of these very secure martial artists suddenly felt insecure. 
because they were working on, you know, on uh, stuff that had not been tested in the field of play. So certainty is what we aim for, and certainty is possible for everybody. That there's no doubt about that, um, and it is possible, but that doesn't mean it's probable, because not many people really want to do the work. You know, people want to change the world, but they don't want to change their socks once a day. You know, they want to march around London with a banner, but they still can't wipe their own nose. So we've got we've got to prove that magic on ourselves. We've got to be able to see it in the bathroom mirror. We've got to be able to show that we have sovereignty over over our physical, our psychological, our um, physiological, our sociological life. We've got to be able to show that. Not that we're perfect, but we show that we have we have the ability to um, uh, to control this vehicle, this vessel, and put nothing into the world that does not come from love, nothing at all. And if we do put stuff out that isn't coming from love, then we immediately confess it and we immediately bring ourselves back to alignment again. It's not about being perfect, but it's about being honest. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's available for everybody. It's possible for everybody. And what I've done in The Divine CEO is I've, um, you'll see as you get further into the book, I know it's a big book to get through, but as you get further and further into your book, you'll see that the honesty and, and the confession is brutal. Um, and and it's people will read it and go, you know, they will know that I'm I'm talking from truth because um, it's my own story, and I'm saying this is how I did it, and these are the mistakes I made. Um, so it will give somebody a very pragmatic path to follow, hopefully. Yeah. So kind of talking about going back to the work, um, I just kind of want to look at my uh, notes here too. There, there's a couple of things that you said about um, like. And I'm, I'm I'm paraphrasing, and you can correct me, but you know you can only go as high as as low as you've experienced. You've also talked about how sometimes people can just maybe stay in this um, you know one reality and not even realize that there's other potentials, possibilities, and other realities that they can open to. Yeah. And then I want to connect that to what you also said in the beginning of the book about the second coming of Christ. You yeah. really helped me to understand that in a totally different way. I mean, I'm not completely studied, you know, in the Bible per se, my background was a Catholic background, but you said, you know, the second coming of Christ isn't necessarily like, you know, Jesus coming back, but it's more of the human nature and God nature that exists together. And you explained yeah. it in a way that it's, it's consciousness and it's about us going within to connect to the creator and the source, which is the second coming. Yeah. And that, I mean, you just, my mind was spinning when I was reading about those things and how really you say so strongly, like in the beginning of the book, like I said, I'm only halfway through about how it really has to come back to that inner work and how, when you began this journey too, you almost became selfish. You made it about yourself. Um, you know, like you really kind of went within before you were able to really go, yeah. go outward. And so I was wondering if maybe we can talk a little bit about what is that work that people need to do. You also brought up a term um, called kenosis um, yeah. and how to unload in that. So I think that, that these couple of points, I know I'm kind of throwing a few different ones um, at you, but I think that that really begins to move us into this conversation about how does the work begin and get done. And you talked a little bit about that with how you made that pyramid, that list of your fears. You weren't just reading yeah. all this stuff in books, but then you went out and applied it. You went yeah. to do it. You went to experience it. Um, so yeah, so 
there's just so much loaded stuff here, but you can only go as high as you know what is low. And also about the second coming of Christ of really being like the true consciousness of us coming within to connect with that creator. So yeah. Can you elaborate? Well, going low is, is what you talk about, the kenosis. Mm -hmm. We've come back to what they call apophatic theology. And it sounds complicated, but really what it means is that we find God through negation or we find ourselves through negation. So by figuring out who we're not, we can automatically locate who we are. Um, it's not difficult to know who we're not. We know we're not jealous. We know we're not angry. We know we're not fearful. We know we're not um, envious and greedy. We know that's not who we are. We know we're not gossipers. We know we're not violent. So once we start to identify that's not who I am, we can start to uh, gradually do the inner work and let go of those. And that's where kenosis would come in. So that would be the self-emptying. We empty everything from us that is not coming from love, that is not God, or that is not our authentic self. Everything that we wouldn't want to see in the newspaper about us tomorrow, we, we um, get rid of them from our life. So we completely empty ourselves in order to make room for Christ or Christ consciousness. So each time we're able to locate uh, a part of us that isn't the real us, say if we gossip, when we stop engaging gossip, when we see that gossip is a, is a subtle form of violence, don't call it character assassin, assassination for nothing, and we recognize that that is not coming from a place of grace, we stop um, gossiping. Um, if we recognize that we're overeating, and that we're taking too much in, and that we're indulging in greed, we stop eating too much, we stop engaging that gannet part of our nature, and each time we get rid of one of these things through doing the inner work, that uh, reclaimed place fills automatically with consciousness. So each time I rid myself of a negative trait or a negative, um, a negative pain body, that will be replaced or that will reveal the consciousness that's already there. So that is the work. The work is to, you know, I always say to people, take your clothes off and look in the mirror. Where can we start? And have a look at the mirror. The mirror will tell you automatically where you can start. If I haven't mastered this body yet, if I haven't got control of this vessel, then I'm not working the magic even on my own waistline. No good trying to attack politicians about the economy if we can't even affect our own waistline. So we start to work on what's around us. We start to recognize that the world is a mirror. So the people we see around us, especially the people we judge, especially the people we point a finger at, they are a reflection of what's in us. The people that we feel sycophantic towards, this basic reaction formation from psychology, we're, uh, we're sycophantic towards the people that we really fear. So we start to recognize around us that the world is a reflection of what we can work on. Um, so we, we gradually empty the old self, or what they call the animal soul, with all the negative impressions on it, and we automatically reveal parts of consciousness that have been hidden. A bit like a penny hides the, the sun. If you place a penny, as little as a penny can block out the sun, um, or a cloud can block out the sun. So we start to reveal consciousness. Consciousness will give us more light, more power, and will enable, will enable us to take on the next challenge. So for me, it was about um, recognizing that most of the stuff I've been taught growing up, um, most of my perceptions and cognitions were wrong. 
They were taught to me by people who meant the right thing or meant well, but they were teaching me what they knew. And that's been going on for thousands of years. So I started to challenge my beliefs. The first belief I challenged was this belief that it wasn't possible for a person like me to be a published author. And I genuinely felt it wasn't possible. When I got an article published in a glossy magazine, I realized that it was possible. Um, I just needed more information and I needed to get rid of all of these old unqualified beliefs. I, need to, I needed to ask them to qualify themselves or vacate. So I started to challenge these beliefs. And this was the beginning of the three stages of Yakeem, which is, first of all, you find intellectual proof. It's possible because other people like me have done it. Then you start to get this visual belief, which is you start to be able to imagine yourself as a published author or whatever it is you want to do. And then once, you, once that tips into certainty, you find you, that you've got a book published and you have the proof in your hand that it's possible. The reason I've been able to write 50 books and all of these other works is because I wrote that first book. That first book gave me certainty. Nobody could take it off me. I can remember uh, when I got my first book published saying to an old friend excitedly, I, I think I could make a living out of this. I've got this book published. I think I could do something with this. And he said to me, don't get above your station, Jeff. Don't get ahead of yourself. He said, you've had a bit of luck. You've got a book published, but let's not, you know, we're not going to change the world with this, are we? It's a local book. It won't go more than that. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, he's, perhaps he's right. Perhaps I'm being pretentious. Perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself. And then I, then I remember thinking, no, no, he's wrong. I have certainty in my hand. I've been published. And on that one belief, I was able to publish 50 books. And I thought, if I can publish a book, why can't I write a play? If I can write a play, why can't I make a film? If I can make a film, why can't I win a BAFTA? If I can make a, if I can make a film, why can't I write for the Times? Why can't I do a, a, an article for the Times? I realized that it was all possible. I just needed to understand the Dharma, understand my Dharma first, which was, you know, I'm a communicator, I'm a seer, I'm going to go out and tell people what I see um, and recognize the greater dharma, which is the law, and start working within that and recognize that if I want to create something, uh, the potential is already there. You spoke earlier on about um, the second coming of Christ um, and in the Christian canon they would, they would refer to this as eschatology. Eschatology uh, it says that Christ will return again um, and, you know, redeem the world. Um, but what, what it really means in the esoteric parlance is that Christ will be reborn in us. So our lower soul, our animal soul, when we clean it up, when we bring it to submission, connects with our higher soul um, and the Christ energy enters us. So a little bit like um, putting concentrated juice into water so, uh, you know, it's no longer concentrated juice and it's no longer water. It becomes a cordial. So that's what happens when the Christ energy comes into us. Um, it's no longer Christ, but it's no longer a person. It's a bit of both. So we, we become imbued with this Christ energy. Um, and that enables us to recognize that everything is already there in potential. So eschatology says that everything is possible. The other 99 rooms are available. They're already there. You just have to open the door and enter. And that's what the work is. Each time you enter, a, each time you leave one reality, you have to let it go and 
go into the new reality and eventually, uh, if you keep the work, get out of the house, get out of the house completely. So eschatology says that the second coming of Christ is a very human thing. The second coming of Christ is where he is manifested within us. But to do that, we have to, first of all, empty everything that is not love because this soul energy won't sit inside a corrupted body. It's torture to it. It's absolute torture. So we have to, we have to create alignment. Uh, we have to create a connection. Or we have to create a religion. Religion uh, in Latin means religare, which means to reconnect to our source. Then we create a covenant. We get this direct link to our soul. And it's like we've connected to a divine satnav. This satnav knows our fingerprint. It knows our dharma. It knows our path through, uh, through this, the, this great earth, the, this realm. And it will, if we listen to it and follow the instructions of intuition, it will lead us path by path, street by street, road by road, world by world, until we're exactly where we need to be. Um, and then, you know, whatever your dharma is, my dharma is to uh, tell my story is to pass on my story in the hope that somebody will be inspired by it, in the hope that it will be an intercession in somebody's life, in a very difficult place. There's no hope, there's no potential. And then they look at me and they see a very ordinary man, working class kid, working in factories till I was 32, living an extraordinary life because I did the inner work. It's all about the work. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that intuition and following that. Yeah. Um, your story about how you became a writer and you received that message, like you have to get rid of everything. You need to sell everything. Yeah. You went to your wife and you said, we've got to get rid of everything. And she said, okay, let's do it. And yeah. uh, you guys, you know, <laughs> completely downsized and you just followed this intuition. And it's so inspiring because I'm having a moment like that in my life right now where I'm just, I'm following what is opening and what's leading and it feels uncertain, right? I'm, yeah. I'm moving from what I think is certainty into an uncertain territory, but yet these doors are just opening and things, things are just falling into place. And I'm not questioning it, kind of like what you said, when you hear that intuition, you begin to follow it. You may not know, like, I'm kind of like, okay, what am I doing? Um, mm. All right, this is opening. I think I'm going to say yes over here because there's such synchronicity and divine timing. And, you know, um, part of it is just moving offices in, I'm relocating and moving. And then all of a sudden I find this new office space a mile down the road and it's available. And I'm like, yes, I don't know why I'm saying yes, but I'm going to go here. And so your story about how you received some of this divine message, this intuition, weren't quite sure, but you trusted it and you went forward with it. Um, I'm ex I'm in the middle of experiencing this right now and it's so cool yeah. and a little scary, but it's, you know, it's a lot of fun and it's this true trust. And you had, there was a quote in the new Testament that you had in your book that uh, was something to the effect of uh, if you take one step towards God, he says, he'll take 10 steps closer back to you. Yeah. And uh, so that's kind of, I feel like I'm taking these baby steps and I'm, I'm feeling these 10 steps coming back. So I'm hoping you can kind of talk a little bit about how you followed that intuition and what had happened as a result of that. Well, once you realize that the language of God is intuition, you start to get rid of everything in your life that, that um, acts as a barrier to that intuition, and you develop acoustic clarity. So that I, I want to be available to hear that, that uh, intuition 
want to be available to hear that intuition whenever whenever he sends that message. If you if your life is full of uh, noise, you know most people's life is full of noise, specifically noise of ambition, noise of fear, noise of survival, you know, noise of all of the stuff that goes around uh, goes on around you. It's very difficult to hear the intuition. Often the ego has to collapse, have to meet a moment of crisis or epiphany before we can hear it. Once you hear intuition and you realize that's the language of God and that's the, that's the voice you need to follow, you, sat, you set your antenna so that it's steady and there all the time so that you can pick it up whenever it comes. Uh, I had a meditation this week and it just said um, 13, uh, 13 reasons to forgive. Start it. That was the book. So I've started, I've written the first, I mean, I guess I've written the, probably the first 15,000 words this week because it came and I sat down and I wrote. I heard it as clear as you talking to me now. I do not doubt it. I sit down and write it. I don't need to know where it goes. I don't need to, I don't need to be published. None of that matters. All I do is follow, follow the intuition. When I was in London, we were um, working on a play at the National um, and I watched one of the actors performing a piece of the work. I felt the world stop. And I remember looking at him and it was just me and him, I felt, in the room. Everything else went dark and he was doing these lines. And I, ju it was, I just felt the presence of God. And, I, and I, I, we'd, what I call it disappear in the room. The room disappeared. It was just me and him. And this voice said to me, get rid of everything, just do this. In other words, get rid of everything that isn't, isn't this feeling and just concentrate on what is this feeling. And that was, you know, I, I felt it. And I remember thinking when I watched this actor, I remember thinking, am I, the only body, am I the only person seeing this? And I looked to the right and the director was crying. And I realized that it had been felt in the room. But I had this message. I left the National Theatre, which is on, on the bank of the Thames. I walked over London Bridge and I rang my wife and I said, we've got to get rid of everything, as you just said. We've got to sell everything. I had uh, an apartment in London. I had... Um, I've got two houses in Coventry, so I had three mortgages. I had a lot of noise in my life. I was doing a lot of things which uh, I needed to let go of. So over the next five years, we gradually let go of everything to the point where I didn't even have to make money anymore. Because I'd sold everything. I'd downsized to have the house. We're just, we're just buying that. I'm buying a house now where I won't have a mortgage so that I won't have the noise or the worry of anything other than the intuitions I'm feeling from God, and I can follow those intuitions, and they won't be twisted or diverted or influenced by the need to uh, earn money. That will come anyway. I have two Dharma protectors with me. They stand here and here. I see them in my room. I hope I'm not saying too much, but I see these Dharma protectors, and they do two things. They protect me from any external noise, from any external threat, but they also make sure that that uh, all of my means are, are met, all of my needs are met. So if I need money, the money will come from where it needs to come from. If I need a roof, that roof will be provided. If I need transport, the transport will be there. Everything I need will come to me because I've created this covenant and I've been given these protectors. And that's exactly, exactly how it works for me. All I need to do is keep my alignment, keep my faith, get rid of anything that blocks out the noise and just listen to the intuition.
Now, it doesn't matter to me if I write a book and it never gets published. That isn't the deal. The deal isn't like I'll, you know, um, I'll write this book, but it's got to be published and it's got to be well-reviewed and it's got to be acclaimed. None of it's to do with me. It is to do with me writing the book. And I, it, once it's written, once it's down on paper, two things have happened. I've learned what I needed to learn from writing the book. So that's a download. And the book, whether it's published now or not, <clears throat> is in the ether. It's in the noosphere. It's already there. It's already been drawn forward. And in order to sit and write a, a 300,000-word book, <laughs> you, have to, uh, you have to make some burnt offerings. You know, you have to sacrifice some animals, as they say in the Old Testament. The, sac the animal sacrifice in the Old Testament is an allegory for sacrificing the parts of the ego that do not want to sit and write a 300,000-word book, that do not want to get rid of their ambition, that do not want to sell their posh apartment in London. You know, they want comfort. So when, we, when I write a book like this, you're, you're looking at divinity in a book, but you're also looking at... Um, alchemy you're looking at all of my old animal soul has been consumed in the act of writing this book i felt them queuing up when i sat down to write this book you've probably read in the introduction there's a lot of resistance in me there are a lot of forces trying to stop me from writing this book those forces you might call them the forces of negativity or the forces of evil but they're necessary energies that that we will consume and sacrifice in the creation of any new thing so um this this when you do a book like this that is that's i know there's a lot said about alchemy lately and a lot of people think it's socks and sandals they think it's nonsense but i'm living proof that it's real but but the alchemy this 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 is the lab this is the great work this is where it takes place and it is painful someone said to me the other day uh, what does it mean to be awoke? I said it means to be uncomfortable. It also means to feel divinity and joy and love, but it means to be uncomfortable on a daily basis. Certainly, that's my experience of it, because I'm having to convert my, I'm having to make my burnt sacrifices on a daily basis in order to get up at five and meditate, in order to keep my palate correct, in order to not feed any negativity, in order not to buy into any of the the hate bait, as I call it, that floats around the ether. You know, we're being baited with hate all the time. We've been baited with negativity. We've been given people it's delicious to hate. I don't hate anybody. I have no enemies. I won't hate anybody. But if any energies come into me and they enter me, they will be consumed, um, God willing, and they will be placed into something beautiful that can serve other people. So um, that process is... Uh, um, it's not without resistance, but we can we can pretty much measure the power of our path by uh, the amount of resistance we feel. If we feel if we feel a tremendous amount of resistance, then it shows us our path is true. This this this, this discernment that we that we get, I call it the divine sword. The discernment the discernment we get as a as a siddha as a miracle enables us to know when. The negativity is catabolic and when it's anabolic. So some, some, some resistance is saying, stop, look at this. This is the wrong path. Some resistance is, is saying, uh, this is the path to go on because, it, because you know, uh, this is where you need to go. And these energies are showing you by the resistance that you should go there. So we need to know the difference. 
Some energies are catabolic, they destroy us. Some energies are, um, some resistance is anabolic and it builds us. So discernment lets you know exactly what that is. But as, you, as again, as you get acoustic clarity with your intuition and as you start to get uh, clarity, um, you know, with your signs and your synchronicities and your serendipities, um, these things become clearer and clearer. They're not clear when you've got three mortgages to make, believe me because you're always worried about trying to make money and you will rationalize anything you can to bring that money in because there's too much fear. So we have to get control of the central nervous system. Um, and we do that through palate, through what we eat, what we drink, what we, what we uh, ingest through all of the senses, you know, what I read, who I speak to, um, the atmosphere I'm around, everything, everything that comes in through my eyes and through my senses is food and i've just got to ask myself is that is this is this food going to take me to heaven you know what i mean is this is this food good for me and if it's not i don't have it that's the discipline so it's coming back to aesop's fable about the the turtle that wants to fly but he still can't even walk on the earth yet if you get a chance to read it, it's very interesting he wants to fly he wants the eagle to teach him to fly he ends up being dropped from the sky and cracking on the floor. And he said, it's my own fault. Why am I thinking about flying when I can't even walk on the ground yet? So we have to prove our magic to ourselves more than anybody else with our own body, with our own life, with our own, you know, with our own environment. No point in me trying to take on Al-Qaeda, you know, or, or, or greedy politicians or, um, you know, or corrupt bankers while I still can't settle an argument in my own front room. But I still can't settle an argument in my own head. Right. Um, so the idea of the divine CEO is, is, as we said before, knowing, finding out who you are through this process of negation, sitting on who you are and allowing him to come to the forefront and then getting rid of every, all the noise so that we can hear intuition and then follow it. And then we are given the optimum path. It's a bit like light coming through water. It will calculate the billions of possible routes and it will follow the optimum route. It might not be direct, but it'll be the quickest route. If you look at a frog in the bottom of the pond um, and you put your finger to touch him, he won't be where you think he is. He'll be just probably slightly to the left. And that's because light has traveled through the water, not directly, but at the most optimum route. When we, when we make a divine covenant and create and connect to the divine satnav, we are given the optimum route. As an ego, uh, as a personality, we don't need to know what that is. We just need to follow it. We need to be um, a loyal servant and just follow it, knowing that if we're serving God, who is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent, then, of course, it's going to serve me and serve everybody else. So I don't go out to serve people. I don't go out to serve myself. But if I serve the higher power, then I'm serving everyone in one go. Mm, beautifully said. Jeff, thank you so much. This has uh, been a great conversation. I can't wait to finish reading the book and then I might want to have you back on so we can talk <laughs> about the other half. Um, would also love to invite you to my book club. I've had some of the authors on the Path Love and Podcast um, come back just for like a half an hour on one of the nights that I'm doing the book club 
to yeah. give the participants uh, the chance to do a Q&A. So um, I'll email you on the side and if it okay. works out and we can make that happen, but I'm definitely going to select this book. I think it might even have to be longer than four weeks because it's a, a pretty hefty one. So it might even go uh, October to November. I think we might take two yeah, months. Yeah, just shout me on, on the round. I'll, I'll be honored to take part. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. And can you hold up your book one more time? Yeah. The Divine CEO. Can you let people know um, where can they purchase this? Where can they take a look at the other books that you have written and to learn more about you, bring them to your website? Um, I've, the only social media I have is a, is an Instagram account and it's Jeff Thompson official. Um, and uh, you can pre-order the Divine CEO from um, Amazon, I believe. Um, and it's, I think you can pre-order it through John um, Zero Books, isn't it? Yeah, John Hunt Publishing. Sorry, I forgot the publisher for a second there. It's John Hunt Publishing. It's uh, Zero Books. So, but most people will probably pre-order off Amazon, and most of my work is on Instagram. I have a lovely girl called Gabriella who runs that for me, and so I'm being looked after. Wonderful. Yes. And I have to say, we just got introduced to uh, John Hunt Publishing and the authors that uh, your publicist is sending us are amazing. So I am so glad our paths have crossed and that this book yeah, came into my life. Lovely, very discerning publisher. They've been very good to me. They're really lovely. Yes. It's been great to come on. It's been great to meet you. Yeah, same here. Thanks again. And thanks for being a guest on the Path 11 podcast. When you are finished with 13 reasons to forgive, if that ends up getting published, come back on. 13 happens to be one of my favorite numbers, by the way. So I <laughs> uh, would love to uh, have you back on again and again and again. Thank you it's so been, much. It, for was in, it was inspired by Maimonides and his 13 attributes of mercy. Maimonides was a rabbi. So get a chance to look at Maimonides. Okay. Um, and if you can send me the link to this, I'll put it on my page. That'd be lovely. I appreciate it. Okay, we will. And we'll put all those links about how to get your book in the show notes. And I just want to thank everyone for joining us today, for uh, listening and watching this podcast. And we will see you all again soon. Bye, everyone. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to this week's show. Before you go, I just wanted to remind you to listen to our new podcast, Mindbenders. Visit mindbenderspodcast.com to hear my dad's synchronistic story, I Hope It'll Bend Your Mind, about Jimi Hendrix. Then submit your story if you think it can bend our minds. Also be sure to check out the video replays of the 2020 Virtual Afterlife Conference. We have over 17 hours of amazing presenters exploring the survival of consciousness after death, working with hospice professionals, physicians, mediums, clergy, counselors, and alternative healers to offer a deeper understanding of death and beyond.